Our text today will be verses 30 through 56. Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 56. And then also we'll make a brief reference to verses 69 through 75 as well. As we uh, prepare now to open God's word, let's go to the Lord yet again in prayer. Lord, we ask for your help. As we open your word, Lord, we don't want to open your word in a flippant way. We want to open your word with teachable hearts. We want to open your word with the the result being that we would be further conformed to the image of Christ. So God, would you search our hearts today and would you try them and would you help us to be mindful of those things that need to be repented of and those things that need to be strengthened and cultivated so that we would indeed bring you glory in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest scholars of the 1500s, I know you're up on your 1500s church history, right? One of the greatest scholars of the 1500s was a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer. He's known for several historical events that marked his life, a couple of them being that he served somewhat as an advisor for King Henry VIII during a time when Henry was seeking to uh, break uh, from the Catholic Church and and had some personal issues going on as well. But uh, Cramer also served as the Archbishop of Canterbury and became a leader in the Church of England and probably is most well known for writing the Book of Common Prayer that was a liturgical guide in worship in Anglican churches, still used today. A very, very well-written book, very great piece of our history as, as the church, as overall, the universal church, and uh, was very much involved in the Church of England uh, as, a, as a priest during his lifetime. Well, as time went on, and, and leadership changed in England, especially in the monarchy, uh, it, it had largely enjoyed a, a large Protestant leadership. But the day came. When one of Henry's descendants, one of his daughters, a lady by the name of Mary, Henry's devout Catholic daughter, she took the reign. And immediately she began a brutal campaign against all Protestants. Cranmer was one of those who suffered greatly under her reign of terror. Many of you may know her as Bloody Mary. It's not just something you drink. It's a real person. She immediately began a brutal campaign against Protestants, Cranmer being one of them, and he was eventually charged with treason and imprisoned in November of 1553. After two years in prison, Cranmer was subjected to a long and and, and tedious trial, which he was charged and found guilty of treason, uh, removed from his priestly office, and handed over to be burned at the stake, just because of the things he believed. The events leading up to his death were quite quite shocking, especially for those people that knew Cranmer. Because in in a moment of weakness and in hopes of avoiding such a brutal death, Cranmer actually recanted and signed a document declaring his submission to the Catholic Church and his repudiation of the doctrines of the Reformation. 
But even though he did that, the government was still determined that due to Cranmer's influence, he would still be burned at the stake. And he was. Cranmer, one of the great reformers, one of the great scholars of a reformation that was being, bringing people back to the authority of Scripture, being, bringing people back to, to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. One of those who helped lead the church in a moment of weakness, how now, how, had turned his back upon all that he and the other reformers had given themselves to. Now, we'll pick back up with this story a little bit later, but think about that. This was, in essence, a, a pastor a man who had embraced, a man who had taught faithfully the Scripture, a man who had, who had de- developed a, a book of common prayer that was used in, in the liturgy of the, of the uh, Anglican church. And in a moment of weakness, denied it just to try to save his life. You know, when people are confronted with significant trials and opposition, and sometimes it doesn't have to be so significant, the temptation to bail on Jesus and to bail on the truth can be massive. That's why oftentimes you see the church flourishing under persecution. It weeds out all of the nominal people. All of you Sunday goers that just check the Sunday box, you're gone. You don't want any part of that. The truly regenerate, the truly saved continue on in perseverance. But, but even among those, the, the temptation and the, the tendency to, to turn our back on Christ and to deny the truths that, that brought us to Him can be significant. In our text today, we have yet another example of such abandonment. This time... Not in a priest in England, but these were the very disciples of Jesus. These were the disciples of Jesus. These were the very ones who walked with him. The very ones that observed him. The very ones that that knew him, that had heard him teach and, and, and had seen the miracles. And now they were all fleeing. Listen, following Jesus is not easy. If somebody told you it was easy, they lied to you. We, we have a, a watered-down gospel today and shallow evangelism that teaches that. Come to Jesus, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, and all will be well. It's a lie. All will be well eternally, but all may not go so well presently. Following Christ is not easy, and we, you and I, will be challenged in our commitment to Him. In fact, if, if you can go throughout your life and never be challenged in your commitment to Christ, you may, never, you, you may very well not be following Christ. We live in a culture today where we are in the minority. You can cry about that, you can wring your hands about that and be angry over that, Or you can learn to live in light of that fact as Christ calls us to live. Jesus and his disciples were certainly a minority in his day. This is not new, friends. I think sometimes Christians, they they hear all that's going on in our culture, and we act as if this is new. 
We act as if, if this, this progressive agenda that's, that's leading culture more and more and more, more astray, as if it's something that just happened in the United States of America all of a sudden, and, and no other Christian has ever experienced this before. And it's always been here. It's always been the case that the world hates Jesus and certainly those that follow him. And so as you follow Christ, know that you will be challenged in your faith and, and challenges to your faith will only increase as time goes on. So the question for us to ask in light of that is, okay, what do we do as we face significant challenges in light of a culture that continues to be more and more hostile to the gospel, more and more hostile to, to believers. How do, we, how do we react to that? Some, some just want to do the, the, is it the ostrich that sticks his hand in the sand? That's, that's some. They just want to do that and pretend it doesn't exist. Others go the opposite extreme. It's kind of like our peacemaking thing we talked about this, this morning. They, they, they go on the attack and the assault and they scream with the vein pop, popping out of their mouth and sling their Bibles at people and, and yell at them. The Westboro type. We're not affiliated with them, by the way. Amen. Friends, how do we live? How do we live in light of the opposition? How do we face these significant temptations to bail on Jesus when things get hard? Well, I'm glad you're asking these questions because I have some answers. <laughs> Not myself, the Scripture. In fact, I want us to see a couple of things in the text that's before us today. How we must respond to temptation, to trial, to, 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 to opposition in light of what we face in our world. When following Jesus gets tough, what do we do? Well, there are three things you need to be reminded of today in our text. We could talk about ten things, but I'm just looking at the passage. We're going we're gonna to bring out three things. I think that that's about all we can handle today. So we're going we're gonna to handle these, and we're going to think about them, and the goal is not just to write them down in a nice little outline in your notes or whatever. The goal is to take them, to apply them aggressively to your life for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's walk through these as we think about living in light of the suffering, in light of the opposition, in light of the hostility that we face so that we don't bail on Jesus. What you want to do today is you want to leave here resolved by the grace of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, not to bail on Jesus. Here you go. Three things we need to remember. Number one, talk is cheap. Look at verses 33, 35. After the time in the upper room, it says in verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. That just strikes me as not funny, but amazing. Can you imagine being one of the disciples and hear Jesus saying, we just enjoyed this great Passover meal. He's, he's been talking about all these things. They still are clueless as to what he's talking about for the most part. And he turns to him and says, by the way, you're all going to fall away because of me tonight. That's what he says in verse 31. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, 
I will not deny you. And look what the next sentence says. And all the disciples said the same. We could pick on Peter, but all the disciples were giving him a hearty amen. They all said the same thing. So again, you have this scene immediately after the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples are going out to the Mount of Olives, and and Jesus unloads this piercing prediction. He's quoting Scripture. He, He basically says, you all are going to forsake me, and I've got the Scripture to prove it. Argue with that. Well, they did. The disciples were shocked, and and Peter speaks up for the group and basically says, not just for the group, he speaks up for himself, they may go, but I'm I'm, I'm with you. I've got your back. Doesn't matter how hard it gets, I'm going to die with you. To which Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, even this very night. And all you have to do is go to verses 69 through 75, and you see that clearly unfold. As you listen to Peter, and as you listen to the disciples, what we have is a very strong verbal commitment. We are with you unto death. But all you have to do is get to verse 56. And you see that that by the time you get there, it says, but all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They're gone. Again, I've made reference to Peter's denial that's unpacked for us in verses 69 through 75. Verse 75 concludes, and after he denied Jesus, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Friends, the disciples were all put to the test the very night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, and every single one of them failed. Why? Well, you would say, well, it's to fulfill the Scriptures, and that's a true answer. That's correct. It was in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Sovereign reasons as to why this was taking place. But, but also, there, there are some other issues at hand here that I think that, that are at play that you and I need to take note of. Because again, these were men that walked with Jesus. They were men that had seen him, that had heard him, that had, that had basically lived with him for three years, learning from him. Just shared the Lord's Supper with him, and now they're running like a bunch of scared dogs. How does that happen? Well, apparently, one thing that we can take away from this is that that talk is cheap from time to time. They they said some strong things. They said all the right things. They they tried to correct Jesus. This is not going to happen. They're verbally expressing commitment to him. But in the end, they're doing exactly as he said they would do. A A few things to note here. Why, were, why, why did they abandon Jesus, at least at this point? No, number one, it, it reminds us that we often overestimate our ability. This is significant. We often overestimate our own ability. 
even with the best intentions and motives, we will overestimate our ability and strength. We, we, we forget verse 41. We're not got, not got there, but let me just give you a quick peek where Jesus says in the garden to his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That overlooked that weak part. Peter and the other disciples were, were at this point putting too much confidence in themselves, too much confidence in their flesh, overestimating their ability. And brother and sister, we often do the very same thing. One of the things that we need to be reminded of regularly to keep us humble and dependent upon Christ is, is the doctrine of total depravity. The fact that we are sinners, that we are impacted by the fall in a great way. That we are ultimately in and of ourselves unable and incapable of perfectly obeying Christ on our own, in our own strength. We are fallen sinners. John, verse, or John chapter 15. Jesus reminds us in John chapter 15 verse 5. He, he's saying, abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For, here it is, apart from me you can do nothing. I didn't make that up. Jesus said it. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. But yet the disciples were thinking, no, Jesus, we've got this. We've got it. So they ignore the scriptures and they were overly confident. Matthew Henry put it this way years ago. He said, those who are least safe are those who are most secure. He's not talking about security in Christ. He's talking about security in themselves. Those who are least safe are those who are most secure. How many times do we, do we think the same things in, in essence of the disciples here, which is implied in their response? Those struggling with, with addictions, whether it's alcohol or drugs or porn or eating or whatever the case may be. I've got this. I can handle this. Just give me some space. Those trying to manage relationships, teenagers, Mom, Dad, I've got this. I, I know how far is too far. I've got this thing. Adults. What about your relationships? What about your own responsibilities? In all kinds of realms. We, we tend to think, I have this. And what, if, what about even those who are much older in age? Even godly Senior saints, they can even be tempted to think, I've been in the church for 40 years. I've been doing this Christian thing for 40 years. I got it. We begin to think that we are capable in and of ourselves to handle all that life throws at us. Listen, 
Temptation is so much stronger than you or I can even begin to understand. You cannot handle life in your own strength. You first and foremost and ultimately need Christ. You need Jesus. He said, without me, you can do nothing. So it would be wise for you and for me to hear that, to respond to that, to run to him, to cling to him, to embrace him, to hold tight to him, to hear his words, to meditate upon the truth, to to pray, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but, but to pursue Christ first and foremost. If you're trying to live life in this world as a Christian, as a non-Christian, you're not pursuing Christ. But as a Christian, how many Christians try to, to do this life thing on their own? And they wonder why they're so discouraged. They wonder why they're so miserable. They wonder why they're so, so, so paralyzed in fear. When was the last time you reached out to Christ? You need Christ. And friends, second to that, you need the body of Christ. Here's my little church membership plug. You need these people in this room. I need you. You need us all. You need one another. And if you look around the room and you're like, I don't know about this group, go find another group that looks better. There's somebody out there that, that you will relate to and, and know and, 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 and can find strength in. You need the body of Christ. That's why, we, that's why we emphasize church membership here and even go through a membership process where we have People sign the church covenant that that states, I want to live in a distinctly Christian way, willing to be held accountable, willing to be helped by it. It's it's in essence saying, I need help in this Christian life thing. I need help. You're giving others permission to to help you. And they're giving you permission to come alongside and help them. Beautiful picture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where we see the body, the the hand, I think it's 1 Corinthians 12, the hand and the feet and all the connected parts. We need that. We overestimate our ability. We, we tend to forget that, that we are sinners. Not only do we do that, we, we overestimate our ability, but we underestimate the battle. The issue of spiritual warfare, especially in Western culture, is often either denied or underestimated. Listen, there is a real spiritual battle waging in the hearts of the disciples and even in Jesus. But the disciples were largely unaware. Jesus was not. Listen, even Jesus refers to this reality in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Same kind of series of events going on here where he says to Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Jesus understood that there was a spiritual reality going on, and, and, and specifically, Peter was being targeted by Satan. Jesus says, chill out, dude, I'm praying for you. This is why... Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or the evil one is included in the Lord's Prayer. Listen, it it is true, absolutely true, 100% true, that Satan is a defeated foe. But there is still a demonic presence in our world, and we would do well to acknowledge it. Not only do we have flesh that's weak, 
overestimating our ability. It's weak. We face an enemy that's been defeated, and he's mad about it. And he's going to try to take out as many as he can as he goes down. So, so when you think about this, parenting issues are not merely matters of obedience and disobedience. There's a battle for your child's heart. Marriage conflict is not a matter of who's right or who's wrong. There's a battle in the heart, in the hearts of men and women. The, the convincing college professor, the, the philosophy, philosophy professor that denies God and that, that, that slams Bible-believing Christians as idiots and all of those kinds of things. You, know, you don't see him merely as, as someone who needs to be better informed. There's, there's an enemy that's taken him captive. We underestimate the battle. The disciples were underestimating the battle. Friends, you and I will only find victory when we humble ourselves to the point, to the point of saying, I don't have this. I don't. I don't have this. When we can get to that point, we're in a good place. Because then we will be dependent upon Christ who has it perfectly. He's got it perfectly. So we need to be pushed to find our strength to obey, to persevere, not in and of ourselves, but in Christ. Which, which leads me to the second point. We're talking about how talk is cheap. It's easy. It's easy to make verbal commitments. You know what we need to do? We need to do a little less talking and a little bit more walking in faith. Walking in Christ. Second point. Second thing that we need to remember in the midst of this is number two. Prayer is essential. Look at verses 36 and following. They go to the garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus went out to them, or excuse me, went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer. Is at hand. This next scene here, we, we see that, that on the Mount of Olives, Jesus intentionally enters into a time of prayer and encourages, not just encourages, he, he in essence exhorts the disciples to do the same thing. So Jesus goes a short distance away and begins to pray. It's a moving scene because what's going on here is the, the full weight of what he was about to do was now weighing heavily upon Jesus as he sought obedience to his Father in this moment of, of crushing sorrow. The, the guilt, the weight 
of this sin-cursed world was now resting upon him. It wasn't that he was fearful and didn't want to go to the cross, but he was feeling the full weight of our guilt imputed to him as he prepares to go to the cross. Listen, if Jesus, the same one who could, who could still a storm by a word, the one that could raise the dead, the one that could multiply food, if, if this Jesus felt like he needed to pray in a moment of great sorrow and anguish, brother or sister, how much more so you and I? In times of trouble, prayer ought to be our very first response. And so Jesus goes and prays. He encourages the disciples to do the same. He comes back, not once, not twice, three times, and he finds them sleeping. Friends, the reason that we find the disciples fleeing in verse 56 and Peter denying in verses 69 through 75 is because they were not seeking Christ. They were not doing John 15, 5. They were too confident in themselves. A few things to note here about prayer. Number one, prayer gives us perspective. Jesus prays in a moment of temptation for himself, a temptation and weakness, to keep perspective on his Father. He, he's even saying... This is tough. If this cup can be removed from me, fantastic. But if it can't, not my will, but your will. Perspective here. He's, he's seeing perspective. He's looking to, to the divine will instead of his own will. Prayer does that. It removes the focus. At least proper prayer does that. It removes the focus from ourselves and it places it upon the Lord. We, we all will see things. We, we like things to happen our way, don't we? But when things aren't going your way, we, we especially need Christ. We need Christ even when things are going our way so that we don't be overconfident and boastful. But when things aren't going our way, we must seek Christ to have our wills aligned with His. To quote J.C. Ryle, he said, we wish and want many things. We wish and want many things and forget that we are entirely ignorant what is for our good and unfit to choose it for ourselves. We think that we know what's going to be best for us, but we're thinking from a flawed, sinful, selfish perspective. So why should we not pursue Christ? Because he is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows everything you need. Prayer, prayer is not informing God of things he needs to know. Prayer is an expression of our dependence upon him. It, it's saying, God, we need you. I am incompetent. I am unable. I am, to myself, a failure. I need you. Prayer is that expression of dependence, and it's an acknowledgement. It's, it's more for, 
for your own benefit of, of growth and grace than it is for God's benefit. He enjoys fellowship with you. He delights in it. He's glorified by it. But it's not that your prayers are informing God of knowledge he doesn't have. Prayer is that opportunity for you to be dependent upon him and for your will now to be aligned with his will. Prayer gives us perspective. But number two, prayer keeps us guarded. Christians often fail because of what we see here. They're careless and they're sleepy. And that can be figuratively speaking as well. Peter, James, and John are caught sleeping here several different times. Clearly, after being told, watch and pray. Specifically, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Because if you're going to overcome temptation and remain faithful to the Lord in the midst of that great temptation, small, whether it's a great temptation or a small temptation, it's only going to happen when you are watching and when you are praying. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. The hymn writer says it well, doesn't he? Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave God. That's our nature. That's our tendency. That's the default of your soul. If that's what we're prone to, we need to be even more mindful of what we need and who we need, and we need to be pursuing Christ. Because the world is filled with temptations. The, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, and our flesh is weak. The, 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 the cards are stacked against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. It will take you down unless your eyes are on Christ. Leads me to the last and final point. Confidence is crucial. Verse 46 marks the moment of betrayal. And in verses 47 through 56, we see Judas arrives with this mob of people. Let's pick up in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how often should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And at that hour, Jesus said to, his, said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So Judas does exactly what the scriptures said he would do. 
He betrays Jesus with a kiss. The mob comes and they arrest Jesus. And Peter, one of the disciples, responds immediately with the sword and cuts off one of the ears of the servants. And Jesus puts it back on the guy and says something absolutely important that you don't need to miss. He says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And at once, he could send 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. So, Listen, we not only have a Savior who inspired the scriptures, we have a Savior that's submissive to the scriptures. Even in the moment of great angst and trial and temptation, He is obeying the very word of God and he's keeping those who want to to try to to overcome that, he's keeping them at bay. Even as he's being arrested, he's in control of the whole situation. Two brief points here to be made. Number number one reminds us that we need to be grounded in God's eternal purposes. Everything was unfolding just as the scriptures had predicted it 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 would happen. Just as the scriptures predicted God's purposes were coming to pass in Christ. And the disciples respond in fear. First by attacking, then by fleeing. It's in those moments of distress and trial that the Christian must keep calm and trust in the providential ways of God. And you know that we are trusting too much in ourselves when we try to take things into our own hands. We do have responsibility to fulfill. We we do have those obligations that we are responsible for. But when we cross that line and try to take God's God's responsibilities from Him, that's that's a great danger. We, We need to just back up and be reminded that God has eternal purposes and we may not understand them this side of heaven. It may take us all of eternity to even begin to understand them then. We need to remind ourselves that God is in control, that God's ways are perfect and right and good, even when things are so distorted and and so confusing and so hard. Be grounded in that eternal purpose of God. But number two, we need to be governed by a peaceful conviction. All of this is building our confidence, confidence that is crucial. We need, not confidence in ourselves, confidence in God's eternal purposes and confidence that drives us to be governed by a peaceful conviction. Jesus makes clear here that we should not greet opposition or persecution or times of testing with violence. Now granted, I believe there are appropriate uses of the sword. I believe in just wars. However, The sword is never to be used as a means to advance the gospel. One of the many things that makes us so different from Muslim extremists. They advance their cause by the sword, and we advance our cause by a different sword. It's called the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Friends, we will stand opposed. We will be tested and we need to be grounded in that eternal purpose of God. We need to be governed by that, that peaceful conviction, that quiet, quiet confidence in God's providential ways that, that leads us to, to our hope in Him. And even in our world today, as we see our culture changing and things developing at rapid speed that we've not experienced before, 
That doesn't mean that we need to respond with hostility and violence. It doesn't mean that we're to remain quiet either. We have an obligation to stand on our convictions, but in a way that embodies the character of Christ. I love what Russell Moore, he's president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and specifically in response, I think this can be applied at a broader level, so I'm quoting it, but specifically in response to the issue of same-sex marriage as been uh, legalized in recent days, he says this, because some will accuse us as being on the wrong side of history. He said, on the wrong side of history. We started on the wrong side of history. A Roman empire and a cross. Rome's dead and Jesus is fine. That was such an example of what I'm talking about here. Having that eternal perspective, having that, that confident, quiet, quiet confidence, that, that confident perspective in Christ, that yes, things may be breaking loose, things may be going all astray. We have a responsibility to speak into that in a Christ-like way. But understand, Jesus is fine. He's not wringing his hands and thinking, what now? There are times that we will all face that will challenge us. But we are called to remain steady with a quiet confidence in Christ because we know how it all ends. The disciples were needing to trust Jesus at that moment, but they were starting to panic. I know we do it, but there's no need to panic as Christians. And I know we do it. We, we, we panic. We, we freak out. We, we see something and we're just like, what do I do? There's no need to panic. There's no need to be fearful. God is steady. And we must trust Him. How do we remain faithful when facing adversity? Well, we need to remember that talk is cheap. You can say a whole lot of things. but it can be meaningless. Prayer is essential, absolutely, absolutely essential. And confidence is crucial. You remember our friend Thomas Cranmer? The very day that he was scheduled to burn at the stake, he stood and declared that his recantation of the teachings of the Reformation were untrue. So he recanted of his recantation. You following me? at which he was immediately dragged from the stage and he was bound at the stake. The fire was kindled and the flames came up quickly around him. And as that happened, Cranmer stretched out his right arm and the hand that had signed the the, the recantation, the original one, put that hand into the flame as the fire was kindled, only to remove it it once to, to wipe his brow, but he put it back. He said, this hand has offended And praying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He died. The same Peter that wept bitterly in verse 72 because of his denial of Christ is the same Peter a month later that would be preaching the gospel and 3,000 souls be saved. These disciples that were scattering like a bunch of scared animals were disciples who would turn the world upside down for the glory of God. It was not because they figured out how to trust themselves better. It's because they had a glorious Savior 
who not only strengthened them in times of weakness, but he also forgave them when they failed. Friend, you may find yourself here today and you may think, man, I have blown it so many times. Well, friend, be thankful that you have a Savior that died for every single time you have blown it. Be thankful that you have one that's ready to offer that forgiveness that you need. It's ready to pick you up and dust you off and, and, and put you back on your way. As my prayer and hope is that this passage would bring to you and to me the ne- necessary humility that we all need. And by God's grace, let us learn to cultivate a spirit of lowliness and self-distrust. And let us determine, as Paul to to boast in nothing but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of any trial as disciples, that we would do more walking and more trusting than talking. Let's not talk about what we can do. Let's talk to the one that has done. Let us cry out for his grace. Let us demonstrate a quiet confidence in our sovereign king, knowing that he is triumphant, that he rules the world, and he is fine. The disciples scattered, but they did come back. And the Lord used them greatly. Let's not scatter. But even if you have, Jesus would call you back. He was ready to forgive you, and he's ready to equip you and strengthen you for everything that you'll face, everything you'll face this week. Everything. He is present and powerful to provide. Let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that we are weak, that we are foolish, that we are unstable, that we are incompetent, that we are incapable. Lord, Lord, you have gifted us. You have given us certain abilities. You have given us certain things. But Lord, left completely to ourselves, we, we can't handle this world. And there will be moments after moments after moment that we will be tempted to bail, to turn our backs upon you. Whether that's through a a heated discussion in the workplace or through awkward conversations with extended family, through, through true persecution where our lives are threatened. God, there are thousands of ways. There will be many, many ways, even this very week, that we are tempted and tested. Whether or not we will be faithful to you, or in some subtle way, deny you. God, would you help our lives and our hearts and our our lives be built upon Christ would you help us to see that our souls can can be confident because we have a great savior who not only died for us but a great savior who sustains and strengthens us in our every moment of need God would you help our hearts be convicted of where they need change 
Father, would you forgive us where we've trusted too much in ourselves or trusted too much in some kind of technique and not trusted in Christ. God, move in our lives for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.